Hello everyone and welcome to Celebrating Cinema, a podcast striving to rebuild our beloved community, creating a more inclusive and shared experience. Today, we're here to celebrate food and cinema, and Kiriko is going to get you very hungry. Throughout my life, I have experienced passionate feelings towards the tomato. The tomato is a special fruit that may seem simple at a first glance, but as you think of her more, she turns out to be the emblem of life and beyond. The tomato is like family, often sour, sweet at times, bitter when gone wrong, and a combination of these flavors when done perfectly right. Tomatoes can be soft, wrinkly, squeezable, juicy, and also rotten. It is the all-encompassing fruit that represents all flavors and stages of life, different in every language. Depending on my mood and on how I feel, the way I perceive the tomato changes with me. Sometimes she is the holy fruit. Sometimes she is simply a round red ball filled with water. You may find this story unordinary and a bit out of place for a podcast about cinema, but I am going somewhere with this. My confession and coming out as a tomatophile is only because cinema has taught me that my intense love for the edible is shared by others. You might be familiar with a phenomenal film made in 1988 by Yuzo Itami called Tampopo. Tampopo tells the story of two truck drivers who stumble upon a struggling ramen chef in Tokyo when then having a collective mission to create the best ramen that the city has to offer. In their quest for the exquisite, the trio stumble upon many figures who feel as passionately about food as I do. We meet the housewife who rises from her deathbed to cook the last meal for her family, a young gangster and his girlfriend who explore all erotic possibilities with food, and a gang of vagabonds who know how to cook proper French cuisine like no other. I go to film school, and one of my teachers recently said to me, a good scene is like a sun-dried tomato, dense, concentrated, and filled with flavor. If this is true, Tampopo can be considered as the sun that dries the tomato. The film is juicy, bitter, mushy, creamy, romantic, candy-coated, and quite spicy at times. My love for food may be as big as my love for cinema. Both make me understand our basic human needs, our passions, and our pain. It is when film and food are combined and strengthen one another that we reach a higher understanding of what the word delicious truly means. Unfortunately, our dear Tom is not present with us tonight, but here to join us is Joost Broeder Huytega, film critic and writer for the Filmkrant and dignified lover of both food, film and films about food. And as always, I am joined by... Hey, I'm Hugo, film critic. And Joost, welcome. Thank you. So, uh, I'm so sorry for you that you're a tomato fan in the Netherlands where tomatoes are so bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I it was is. thinking the same thing. <laughs> it, is, it is very sad indeed. But I lived in Italy for five years. That's better. So I got my tomatoes in the time that I was living there. And I, I try to go back whenever I can. <laughs> yeah. I've got a great anecdote about 
being in a supermarket in Italy by mistake like too many hours because I was just so, like looking at all the food and shopping and then suddenly they were closing so I had to run through the supermarket and do all the shopping in a very small bit but all the tomatoes came from the Netherlands that's true and I was absolutely disgusted yeah. yeah, that sucks. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I, I think the Netherlands is the biggest producer of tomatoes in the world. I know the Germans are not known for their comedy, but there's a great German joke that in the Netherlands, the water has four stages. Fluid, ice, steam, and tomato. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> really love that joke. Yeah, it's also incredible how people have no idea of what a tomato can be and the potential of it all living yeah. here. Like, people don't care. Like cinema. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also ironic because no one would disagree with you if you'd say, oh, yeah, I'm a lover of film and I'm a lover of food, but nobody really does, you know? Nobody mm. really loves either of those things, I feel like. <laughs> but um, I figured that uh, you do, Yost. S- some of us d- try. <laughs> yeah. What is your relationship to both and maybe the, the combination of the two? Yeah, so I'm a film critic, first and foremost. I studied film at university then became a film critic so i write about film for a living mostly writing i dabble in some video stuff nowadays as well and then i love food and at some point when the writing stuff wasn't that much of a challenge anymore in a certain period of my life i loved doing it but i knew how to do it i started thinking about cinema in other ways and the video was one part of that but another part was thinking of it through food So my wife and I started this project called A Bordful Cinema or A Plateful of Cinema, where we try to cook like certain directors would cook if they were cooks instead of filmmakers. That sounds more complicated. Maybe it is that complicated. No, it makes kind of sense. Um, So the best example is something my uncle who loves film but doesn't know anything about it. Uncle Boomy? No, <laughs> Uncle Martin. So I, I tried to explain this concept to him and it was all sort of complicated. We were just starting out with it and then suddenly it clicked with him and he said, oh, so for Tarantino, you do a blood sausage. And I thought, mm. yeah, exactly. That's that's the thing. So we tried to translate the way somebody thinks about film and makes film and uh, the way they use the cinematic medium, translate that to a way of using ingredients and in using the kitchen, using also building a menu, all that kind of thing things so for Hitchcock we do a classic three course because you have a beginning a middle and and an end and for Fellini we do a spread you know a whole table full of food with everybody grabbing what they want yeah so that that's the challenge we set ourselves every time and we have to start with a filmmaker who has a sort of very clear recognizable style and then we try to distill that into something we can serve to guests Amazing. funny because often also filmmakers, when they refer to their own filmmaking processes in interviews, might use metaphors that are related to food preparation and cuisine, right? Yeah, very often. So we we started blogging, that sounds old-fashioned now, about it when we started doing the project. It's still very much work in progress, even though we've been working on it for years. But yeah, one of the things we posted regularly is just quotes of filmmakers comparing what they do to uh, being in a kitchen. You, you have all these ingredients, but then you have to sort of do it by feel or you have to be very precise. The approach to working, I guess, lends itself to that uh, metaphor.
It sounds truly amazing. Is it possible to attend these dinners or is it in-home, private? At this moment, in-home, private only. We're working towards doing a cookbook at some point. And when we first started it, we had a little bit of momentum. We did some home dinners and we did something a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger. We did some sort of well, yeah, catering jobs at festivals for maybe 30, 40 guests. That was really cool to do, but it's also, again, a few years ago. And then, I don't know, life got in the way and other work took preference. So it's it's been on the back burner, to use a cooking <laughs> metaphor, for a while. <laughs> but it seems like it's getting some momentum again the last few months. So we'll see where it's, where we're headed with it. I'm, I'm hoping to pick it back up in later this year, next year, with some kind of events somehow we'll have to see how that works what i like about it is that via food and thinking about the cuisine side of it you also basically analyze and deconstruct what a filmmaker is about or also really approach the filmmaking side of it which i also really liked about your cold open kiriko that using those metaphors it's a quite apt way to also describe tom popo which is kind of the film that brings us now together However, I am wondering what you think maybe more, Kiriko, personally about the film, because you describe all of those things, you have all the labels, like it's sweet and seductive and romantic and like a sun-dried tomato, but can you talk maybe a bit about your personal experiences of seeing the film and what struck you as all of those romantic and nice and sweet and seductive things? Well, I think the words that I use to describe the film are mostly very positive and very delicious and, and fun to eat. But what I like about the film primarily is that it is all-encompassing. So it is not only delicious, but at times also quite disgusting <laughs> and scary. And it comes in to, to a certain extent also close to death, which is also, I mean, eating something is making something disappear. So it, it is quite logical, <laughs> I would say. And I find that's the fun aspect of not only Tampopo, but, but many or the few successful uh, films about food that I have seen is that it really becomes existential that eating is part of life and it's not always delicious. It can also be very painful and without flavor. And I would say in regards of Tampupo, I think I've seen the film many, many times. I remembering seeing it for the first time as a young teenager together with my mother and being very embarrassed at the scene with the uh, with egg yolk. And I and I re-saw the film last week and then it was super short and I remember it being like going on for for an hour. <laughs> well, seeing it with your mom will do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was horrible. I find it quite incredible how you can make a film that is so loose and that goes everywhere and follows apparently everyone who's living in the city. But then it also at every moment in the film brings you back to this crucial moment that we all experience every single day of our lives it's yeah it's it's a really special film sorry i have like the worst lowbrow reference to make but i was thinking about you know the existential idea of food making things disappear as well and the only real moment that i still remember of seeing planet terror by roberto rodriguez 
is the moment where you have this this kind of sweaty dude with maybe a mustache and he's kind of like a trailer trash American guy and he has a diner and he wants to make like a special sauce for his I I don't know maybe meat dish or bean dish I don't know what he makes maybe a pasta and then it's like a super bloody you know, Grindhouse B film. And then at the end, when he's covered in his own blood because he's being eaten by the monsters or he's shot, I like, I literally don't remember anything about the film except for the moment that he tastes his own blood and he's like, yeah, that's it. That's the secret ingredient that I was looking for to make my special sauce. And it just was so endearing. And that's maybe it says something that's the only moment that really struck with me in the film that he's constantly apparently while all of these crazy things are happening thinking about food which is very relatable yeah and somehow there is also a theme of films about food that are good that are also about cannibalism (laughs) i guess that's just something that hits hits every single time i think it is because of like you said food is life and i think that's a big part of what tampopo is about as well the final image maybe i'm not going to spoil it if people still want to see the film but the final image makes that connection food and life very 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 clear the image that's underneath the credit i'll tell you because i have some questioning looks we're Um, open for spoilers yeah okay so i'll go so the credits roll over the image of a breastfeeding baby so you have the boob which is the titillation literally yeah uh, but you also have the feeding and l- new life. And I think a, a lot of what Tampopo is about is new life. But then within that, packed in that, is death. Because what feeds us is something that's dying, whether it's a plant or an animal or whatever we ingest is something that's now no longer itself. It's part of us now in whatever way it is. So that connection of life and death is sort of inherent to it, I think. And yeah, I- it, it also has a very... I would say fluid light take on it as people are eating and also dying like when the film is over you feel like you've watched a comedy which it is but then there is so much drama inside this act of eating which is yeah yeah so balanced which I think is also something that some of the great Japanese films of late have been able to do to use maybe comedic mode of filmmaking to make the most sincere and touching kind of films i don't know it's an interesting way that food can deliver all of those things at the same time yeah maybe it's also interesting to think about because the directors you just named yoast for your dinners are i think all directors who have a special relationship to showing food in their films and i wonder if you've discovered something while doing this project how food tells a specific story or maybe a different story within film? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, sh- I'm no, I don't know. It, and at least that's not why we select certain filmmakers. But we do find that connection time and time again. That's really, that is true. So Hitchcock was a foodie. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we all know what he looks like. No shame, though. <laughs> that's mean. <laughs> no, he looks like a person that loves to dabble in death but really appreciates <laughs> life <laughs> again he was very into that connection of life and death that exists in food uh, he gave these crazy dinner parties for instance one where all the food was blue which is like the most inedible looking mm-hmm. color <laughs> how did he do that do you know that like food coloring and selecting specific ingredients like if if you use a red grape it, it can look blue in within certain contexts let's say and maybe the lighting, I don't know, he was a showman, he, he made it work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, F- Fellini, of course, there's food everywhere and it, it's a big part of his life as well. And then 
question is, I guess, you know, about what food can also signify when you see it in film. Like, for instance, your uncle, not Boomy, but Martin, <laughs> Uncle Boomer, I'm thinking, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uncle Boomer, who can recall his past lives, goddammit. <laughs> That's what boomers basically do all yeah. day, right? <laughs> I remember back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to all boomers out there um, listening to When us. your uh, uncle aptly, you know, describes Tarantino via the blood sausage, I also remember, you know, in Inglorious Bastards for something, you have the strudel, and that also becomes this kind of power dynamic between, you know, the person at the table who has the power and the person that are kind of subjected to it, and then the crushing of the strudel kind of also signifies that. So maybe that's kind of what your question was aiming at, like... When you see food explicitly in film, does it sometimes also just signify more than just the food itself? I guess any filmmaker worth his salt will take any object they film and make it mean something. And food, because it is something that is so universal, we all need it every day. There's a lot of meaning to be attached there. If you want to do that as a filmmaker, the option is always there. So I don't think that the filmmakers we found are specifically into showing film. I think it's the other way around. I think it's almost any filmmaker you're gonna investigate. And if you have an eye for this subject, you're gonna find stuff all the time, everywhere. Because it is everywhere. We're always eating. If you start looking for it, Brad Pitt, every part he takes, he's always eating. Like he, he made a big thing out of it in the Oceans films, but mm. where every scene he's just chomping down on whatever because the craft services weren't that good and he wanted to <laughs> keep his... Tummy full, that's the story anyway. But he, he does that in a lot of films. It's recognizable, it's something to do as an actor. He's, he's doing stuff. There's one scene in Tampopo where I believe it's the first successful bowl of ramen that Tampopo makes, which is, I think, a one-taker or close to it, where five men uninterruptedly for five minutes eat a whole bowl of ramen at once, which... I mean, that is not something that can easily be done twice if the ramen is not good. So it says something about the director that he really cares for the quality of his food as well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I feel like Tom Popo plays so much with eating on screen. One of my favorite moments in the film, which might also be one of my favorite food moments, is when all the ladies get a lesson in how to eat like an Italian, how to eat your Italian noodles. And then <laughs> when the instructor looks away, they're all <laughs> back at slurping the noodles, which also makes me think of how this is such an interesting reverse take on, you know, the spaghetti Western versus the noodle Western, but also it's kind of like laughing in the face of Orientalism and is doing the exact reverse thing where it's kind of projecting this myth of Italy, how it might be perceived by Japanese people. It's a very significant moment, but it's also just a throwaway joke at the same time. So that maybe is exactly what you describe, Joost, that it's incredibly efficient to use foods to convey so much at once. Yeah, and Tampopo is, is a film. There's not just one scene doing <laughs> that. It's the whole <laughs> film doing that. It goes against the grain of, I mean, that's, I guess, for many people, a pet peeve, including mine, that you see people in a in a good restaurant or in a nice diner and they get 
food and then they talk and then it's time to leave and nobody ever took a bite of that delicious hamburger or maybe somebody ate like one french fry and had one sip of soda and then it's time to go next scene and well you're showing food on film is one thing and showing eating on film is another because you get continuity problems right you you can't cut to the other take because they took a full bite and the burger looks different so yeah eating is something else but but it's it's a very efficient way of giving some meaning like so people not eating a burger that says something even if the filmmakers don't intend it one of the first video essays i did which was probably around the time that we started uh, Bordful Cinema as well was about the fridges in the kitchens of David Fincher's characters and in every one of his films up to that point I think he's he's made one or two since that I haven't really checked but definitely in Mank there's one so I, <laughs> I wanted to ask how so Mank's I, fridge well <laughs> so so in Mank there is no fridge because the there was but there's an ice box full yeah. of the fucking alcohol yeah. so yeah, yeah, it's yeah. essentially um, in David Fincher's films everyone except maybe one I haven't checked because it was after I did the video essay, there's a shot of the fridge being opened and you see what's in there. And because Fincher is known for his detail-crazy set building, you know that what's in there means something. And it's very easy to see what it means. So in the social network, it's open and it's only bottles of Coke. It's like, that's Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) Only soda. Yeah, and no food, no healthy stuff. They they eat somewhere else. They They just need the energy. And... Just that one shot says so much about that character and what state of mind he's in doing all that prep work for building Facebook or what would become Facebook. That's what that's what I mean. This simple shot of food has so much meaning in it that you would have to sort of have eight lines of dialogue to put all that out there in another way. So f- filmmakers, if they're smart, they can use that stuff and yeah, they do yeah, yeah, all yeah, the time. Yeah. I'm going to absolutely derail the conversation, but it needs to be addressed on this podcast specifically. What's your take on Mank? <laughs> <laughs> I love Mank. <laughs> but I, I'm a Fincher fanboy, and I, there's a lot of problems as well, but I, yeah, I love it. It's a dissenting opinion, but we welcome it. You know, <laughs> as Elliot describes it, it's a place to celebrate cinema. So you're still Ooh. welcome, Joost. Thank you. <laughs> What are some of your favorite moments then of food and cinema? What moments really work for you? Somehow I keep going back to the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. What the hell do you think you're doing? Telling a complete stranger intimate details about us. It's not about us. It's about me. It's about us! And what's all this, how much time you spend in that loo? And what's all this about a gynecologist? Who is he? It better be a she. I don't want some bloke fingering my wife about. It's a man. He's Jewish. And he's from Ethiopia. I think that was the last film I saw in a cinema before the world turned to shit at the Berlin Film Festival last year. Yeah, that that's a great film. And the food in that is, again, so laden with all kinds of meaning and craziness. So the whole film is basically in a restaurant and the plot is the title of the film. There's a cook, there's a thief. The cook owns the restaurant. The thief is the uh, the money man of the restaurant. Then the thief has a wife who he, of course, brings to the restaurant all the time. And the wife 
strikes up with another man who is a guest at the restaurant eating at another table and things happen from there which you can sort of in the way that you would expect they they would go if a gangster's wife strikes up a relationship with someone else but it's it's very theatrical so it's a peter greenaway film from late 1980s i would guess and theatrical in in the most cinematic way possible i don't mean that as a pejorative as it usually is used the sets are so striking and it most of the film is just in this restaurant the lighting changes all the time and yeah and it's completely baroque that's the thing that stuck with me the most it's so baroque the moment that stuck with me most is this is very much a spoiler but um, (laughs) the lover gets killed at some point and uh, the lover is of course a wonderful man who loves literature and he owns a library I think and all he does is eat good food and read good books yeah um, he's reading a book all the time at the table sitting there alone and then making eye contact with the wife of the gangster who's played by Helen Mirren and I think he's also a specialist in the French Revolution um, (laughs) which of course says wonderful things about who he is and then I believe he is slaughtered by one of the gangsters how do you call this Gangsters, like the henchmen, henchmen yeah. who rips page per page from, anyway, a book about the French Revolution, which is then throbbed down his throat so that he gets eventually filled and killed by the French Revolution. Not stuffed is the cookie stuffed. term you're looking yeah. for. <laughs> <laughs> stuffed by his two big passions, which is, uh, I would say, indeed very Baroque and theatrical. Which brings me to a very pressing question because I still have cannibalism on my mind. Why is it that mostly French films dabble in cannibalism? Do you have an idea of that about that, Joost? No, I, I think you'd have to ask a, a sociologist or. <laughs> a, a <laughs> well, mass isn't there something in the French know. cuisine that maybe relates to it, or in the French cinema? I mean, we have our new French extremity and our Claire Denise and our. I guess. French cuisine, maybe more than other cuisines, is okay with death being on the plate. Mm. But every other cuisine has this as well. So there's a great book by a food writer called Michael Pollan, where he goes sort of through the, the four elements and ties those to four very basic cooking methods that we've had since times of old. And so earth for him corresponds to fermenting. There we go. Mm -hmm. So putting it in the ground and waiting until it's good and dead, literally good and dead. And his his theory, one of the many great theories in that book, is that the most extreme food you find in any culture is something fermented. So something dead and basically spoiled. So in the Netherlands, for instance, we have drop, which is our characteristic candy, which is fermented. We have haring, which is raw-ish, but slightly fermented fish again we have pickles with the haring which is also a fermented food so the most extreme foods in any culture he, he claims are often the fermented stuff so the stuff where death comes into play and eating that and liking that sort of shows you're local mm. uh, somehow so if, if you go to finland you need to eat the uh, shark's fin that's been in the ground for two years and it's completely inedible to anybody who who comes from outside and doesn't know about any of the tradition in china you have the thousand year eggs uh, yeah. it's all this, a similar kind of principle yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and he connects this to bacteria so in those most fermented most dead kind of foods are all the local bacteria mm. so you eat that and it's sort of an inoculation to anything you might ties you to the place. Yeah. you to the place and it also it makes you 
intimately part of the place or makes the place intimately part of you. Mm. So, so his suggestion for travelers is the first thing you do when you get somewhere is find the most extreme food that everybody says don't eat. Don't eat if you go to China the thousand year egg because you'll get sick. Do that first. Maybe you'll get sick. But after that, you can eat anything that's there. Mm. <laughs> you've, you've got it covered. Your body knows what to deal with now. So what would that be for France? Well, cheese. Yeah. That's why I said France maybe has the most of this stuff because it's cheese and it's dried sausages and um, foie gras. And mm. that's very, very dead. Yeah. Um, maybe it's also a philosophy of nothing being too crazy because once you prepare it with really good butter and sage, it is fabulous i think that's also that's yeah help that helps as in many places it comes from from something more frugal like let's not waste all this stuff that we have we're not eating just the steak because we can't afford to throw 90 percent of this cow away that's like the delicatessen approach to cannibalism i guess like both the let's not waste the human meat but also let's put it in a nice buttery pan and it will still be delicious Whereas, you know, you have a film like Graaf by Julia Ducournau or you have like um, Trouble Every Day, which is a great title for a, a vampire film, by the way. Which is actually <laughs> more, I would say, a cannibalism film than a vampire film per se. But isn't any vampire film secretly a cannibalism yeah, film? Yeah, maybe, yeah, because they Definitely. also are really in... Yeah, but it's like... But then that's the point that I want to make about it because, you know, f- no vampires are often portrayed as these kind of dignified underclasses in our society that are like this this hidden elite or something like if you would see the blade films and how they have their own you know blood repositories and stuff and their own secret clubs and whatnot or you have your only lovers left alive where they are also consuming literature mostly but then also sometimes you know a nice young lady Uh, But I really like the Claire Denis film because it takes more the, let's say, carnal approach and is just a hot woman that just wants to devour people. And that seems to me more French than anything else, (laughs) if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm projecting a lot of (laughs) sexual angst. (laughs) But I do know. I think that's just because because you're going to France next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk talk (laughs) food film with us. (laughs) Claire Denis, call me. (laughs) But I mean, there's something there, I guess. I mean, Claire Denis also said of uh, High Life that it's it's a film about death and life and it's it's a thing that she's constantly exploring but I, I it feels like there is something in this extreme french art house scene where people are really attracted to the idea of consummating or each other's body literally yeah so consummating and consuming yeah. are very close together yeah yeah i think that's also one topic we have not discussed we touched on it a bit talking about death and then life being part of the film and then if you're seriously going to do something about life then sex is part of it that's where things start yeah. so i think the, c- the connection between the two that tom Popo makes between sex and life and food comes from that comes from that sort of thinking it's also connection. what i was thinking about when i mentioned that in american films you often don't see people eating but you also often in these mainstream american films nowadays at least don't see people fucking anymore and it feels like those two things are also somehow related, maybe. I, th- I think their solution is making Brad Pitt eat things <laughs> in film. For every, and then, for everybody. then <laughs> the Brad problem Pitt is... Brad Pitt eats for everybody and the rest just consumes 
Soyland. <laughs> yeah, no sex, no eating, just Brad Pitt eating, and then we're we're settled. <laughs> well, I, I guess there's something in that American cinema is um, is terrified of the act itself. It's it's good at the build up. It's good at getting to the sex. Maybe American cinema is terrified of fermentation and bacteria because they don't like. Well, to in get, the end, yeah, yeah, the, it's quite the, sterile the, from time. It all comes down to death, and then who wants to look at death in a Hollywood film? Sadly, I do. But <laughs> <laughs> is there a fermented food that is, I wouldn't say native, but American? Well, I'm pretty sure if you're going to go into the native kitchen, then there's there must be something. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I'm not familiar with that, so I wouldn't know. Well, well, it is interesting that with, with First Cow, that you do see that, you know, the, the fishy oily cake that they make is now being kind of memefied at the moment but it has a central role in the kind of pioneering narrative that the film is about right about also baking and conquesting and settling down and having your oven tied to a house and stuff so Mm. there's a thing there about the founding myth of westernized um, or european fight america i guess so is anything worth doing Until she barely produces a thing. Some people can't imagine being stolen from. Let's hope he's one of those. We got a window here, Cookie. History isn't here yet. It's coming, but maybe this time we can take it on our own terms. Like, even if they try to make cheese, they come up with cream cheese. So we found this out while we were preparing for Bordeaux Cinema, the Michel Gondry menu. Um, so American cream cheese exists because people, a hundred years ago or so, tried to make something like a camembert in America. <laughs> and they failed. <laughs> and they ended up with <laughs> cream cheese. And so they decided to make a cheesecake from it at least we have something and we can eat it again let's not throw this stuff away so for Gondry we we turn it back around because he's from France but he works in America and he goes back and forth so we we do um, a a classic New York cheesecake but with camembert instead of the no taste cream cheese it's really good yeah wow incredible and then we do some gummy bears soaked in vodka because you have child's play with an adult tick I don't know how you say that in, in English. Wow. Together? You eat it together? Yeah. Wow. Just go for it. Sounds crazy. Yeah, we do some pop rock with it as well. So Knettersaker, I don't know. The pop rock? Pop rock in English, but I don't know if everybody knows what, what that is. I can I can picture the food and I can immediately also picture that it ties into Miko Gondry's cinema. So yeah, that works very well. Yeah, it would be so nice to serve him a slice I would love to be able to do that, yeah. The other like crazy ambitious plan we have with Bordeaux Cinema, it's not a plan, it's a dream. Uh, but it's, I'd love to put a filmmaker together with a chef who have sort of similar styles of working and let them talk and stay out of it, but see what, where that ends up. Do you have a, a dream director and a dream yeah, chef? Yeah, so that's why I'm thinking of it. Michel Gondry, I would love him and Heston Blumenthal. I think they, they look at the world in very similar ways and look at crea- creativity in very similar ways. Mm. And another one I would love to do is René Redzepi from, from Noma. He's mm-hmm. one of the big chefs in the world right now or the last few years. Uh, and Lars von Trier. Mm. <laughs> because nice. they're, they're sort of very strict and, and l- 
local and tied to the place they are from, but international and a little bit neurotic. Yeah. So and we have a couple of those that are probably never going to happen, but still would be it interesting. It sounds absolutely awesome. Yeah. It makes me think of, have you also ever researched all the filmmakers or actors? I mean, we've had with the film cunt, we've had our wine tasting with all the film people that are into wines. But there's also quite a lot of people that have like a restaurant or hotel enterprises. You know, Robert De Niro has his sauces or something or his hotels. Yeah, there's, there's and Paul Newman's sauces. And <laughs> well, yeah, Coppola does both. He has yeah. the wine, yeah, yeah. but he's very into food. No, we sort of stayed away from that because it's like a can of worms. Once you start, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. But you too have much. Your David Lynch has his clubs. They'll probably have a bar or like a restaurant menu. And But the most interesting one that I know at the moment, which I'm dying to visit sometime in, in Taipei, is Taimin Lian's coffee shop which actually is also his permanent installation gallery where he can just screen whatever <laughs> he has made that year or something. Oh, wow. That sounds like the most amazing place to visit, to also get to know a director in a more intimate way or, or their respective works. I would probably give a small toe to have Scorsese's mom make me a pasta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so good. Which director do you think would have the most problems with the cuisine that you've cooked in their style? Oh, that's interesting. That's that's an interesting question. It has to be a director that also just gets so offended when you try to analyze a bit of their work in an interview. Like, who are you to even talk about my work like that? <laughs> we did a Cronenberg one that I think... I, I don't know if he'd be happy about the analysis, but... What, what did you that make? It was mostly a visual what is, thing. What is more edible? Than a, <laughs> well, that, that was the problem him. we started with. How do you make food disgusting and still have people eat it? <laughs> um, so we didn't go for disgusting in the end. But there's a, there's a couple of very good food scenes, of course, in, in Cronenberg's work. Again, the number seven special. I, it's not the, I, I get the number wrong, probably. But there's a special in Existence in the Chinese mm. restaurant, which like that whole table looks just... Awful. The special is for special occasions. I cannot give you the special. But this is a special occasion. It's her birthday. A birthday is a special occasion. I will therefore bring a special for everybody. We did lobster which is a very very Cronenberg kind of ingredient yeah mm. with quinoa I think and then deliberately not done that well so that it's a bit grainy and a bit bad and a bit tough to eat like you you need to work on it and as an entree we did these little dumpling style things filled with mushrooms so that that sort of looked like brains they got the outlines of brains in the dumplings Ooh. looked great i bet needed some like we did th that was the first test we needed to develop a bit more but i really love the, the look <laughs> of them i don't know if he'd be thrilled about what we saw in his work but i think cronenberg is a pretty nice guy i think he would be like well you do human <laughs> like, <laughs> cronenberg has a lot of own weird obsessions so i think he would be definitely down if people play with his i think what would he think of that I think it was Rick and Morty or something that also had this whole bit about Cronenbergs. There was this cartoon that had this whole thing that whenever somebody became like absolutely gutted and nasty, they became a Cronenberg or something. Oh, wow. After a while, you had this cartoon episode where there was like everybody is a Cronenberg walking around. So 
I think he's already so memeified he'll be down with. Yeah, yeah, probably. What would uh, Werner Herzog uh, cuisine look like? Talking about memeified uh, directors. <laughs> With Herzog, we went for looking for some kind of ecstatic truth and and also do a play on the fact that he, he does documentary and he does fiction and it doesn't really matter to him. So we ended up with a salad of, I think, a lot a lot of tomato, oh, uh, but in in all stages of existence, like some raw, some sun-dried, some baked. But some nice. It's like a, we're <laughs> coming wow. back to the cold open. Yes. <laughs> oh, um, sounds really good. <laughs> it was a great salad, but it wasn't really thematically done yet. There's some element of an idea there, but we need it. It needs more work. It's hard with Herzog because you get so close to memifying the food as well, right? If you would do something with a chicken, it would automatically be the ending of Strozek or, you know, it's... Uh... Yeah, but I think the tomato comes very close to the essence of what what Herzog is trying to make as well. Yeah, the way you describe the tomato in the cold open, that's sort of what he's looking for in, in a lot of his work. Maybe yeah. not so much anymore now that he's memified himself. Uh-huh. Chicken would be the obvious choice. Our good colleague Kees Driessen has a theory that there's chicken in every Herzog film, yeah. I think. I've been thinking a lot also about the relationship between food and film via Gunda, because... Mm. cinema back in the day of course also like it used to have pig fat as an ingredient to have the celluloid process to begin Mm. with so it was never vegan at all but that made me like project a lot of things on gunda as well which is now also of course a film playing in cinemas and i don't know Uh, i should have asked kosakowski when i interviewed him whether he shot on film yeah, That's so it's incredible that you had this thought while watching Gunda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like life and death, right? And food captured in one film, a documentary about Gunda, who's a pig. She's recently the mother of 12 little piglets and they live on the farm. And there's also some rescue chickens and there are some cows that are going out of the barn for the first day of spring. And it's just this kind of radical documentary approach, I guess, fully observational mostly to what a life of a barn animal looks like and then it just allows you to project many of those things on it that i just did but you don't know what the fate of most of these animals will be at the end or you can picture the millions if not billions of animals that are like those that have a a similar uh, fate at the end but it did for me bring a lot of things together about our relationship with film and food Maybe to wrap it up, then what does this exercise of cooking and trying to compare directors' styles to cuisines sort of benefit both you as a critic, but also the people consuming it? What it brings for me and what it brought when we started and what it still does is is a different way to look at the form, at, at cinema, at what it does and what a filmmaker does. Like if I approach it head on when I'm looking at a film and writing about it, then I come from the side. Uh, when I'm looking at it through this lens. Yeah, you pick up different kinds of details because of that. It forces me, but it challenges me to boil an oeuvre down to sort of an essence, to, to make something edible out of it, to digest it literally almost. And that's a very different way of dealing with cinema and dealing with what filmmakers do than just writing it down. When you look at a film or you see a new film from a from maybe a prominent director, does your food a plateful of cinema brain also activate are you sometimes in the process of watching the film thinking of 
preparations for a dish that could align with it or is it still too separate for that? More often there's moments the other way around where I'm sitting in a good restaurant or I'm watching some bad foodie television. <laughs> um, either will work. And there's something on the plate that that's exciting or, or that somehow does something or somehow tells a story or an ingredient I haven't had before or anything like that. And it pops in my head that uh, this is that director. This could be something or other. So I, I had a, a colleague of mine years ago made me a risotto with strawberry. Great risotto, simple risotto, some rosemary, parmesan cheese, strawberry. Brilliant. And then I ate it and something clicked and it went, ah, Sofia Coppola. Like there's so much in that bowl that works for what she does. Like it's the traditional Italian where she comes from, but it's strawberry, which doesn't belong there. So there's some crazy California in there and yeah, all these kinds of things. So it, it's more often the other way around than sitting in the cinema. Yeah, the, f the food is more of a trigger than the cinema for this project anyway. It's a sort of a good place to end it on, I think, because yeah. it's a very complex relationship that you'll never understand by putting words to it. It's more the experience of continuing. It's kind of an alchemic process. But yeah, exactly. Thank you very much for coming on. The next episode, usually we have a film club to share with you, but instead we're going to be a bit more experimental. Hugo's off to Cannes, yeah. and hopefully he'll be bringing some very exciting material, hopefully ask a few people there their take on cannibalism and <laughs> the perfect cuisine to replicate that and as always keep writing in to celebrating cinema at lab111.nl with your stories and questions but also have a go at doing a cold open we'd love to play that on some of our episodes tell us what you've been seeing at the cinema and what's your take on it but otherwise take care and enjoy